0: Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. All right, open your Bibles. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 5. We have been looking at the last time that... We were in Nehemiah 4. You remember, they were working on the project and they were all carrying weapons. Trowel in one hand, sword in the other. Nehemiah is walking the city. Nehemiah has the guy with the trumpet, the alarm, the security system right beside him. His eyes are on the project. Now the project is beginning to surface some underlying issues that were undetected up until this point. He's been focused on the external threat. There's a threat to Jerusalem, a threat to God's glory. There's a threat to God's people. That's why they're carrying weapons. The author did include, and we saw that, the brief note about the nobles who wouldn't get involved they just wouldn't stoop their neck to the work of the ministry. Who do you think you are, Nehemiah? They're not doing that. Now in this chapter today, we'll encounter a fundamental threat that can prove even to be greater and more devastating to the building project than the enemies of Israel. The community here is itself in danger of self-destructing. If something doesn't change, they're just going to implode internally we know this right there is an identified enemy but the most difficult enemy is the enemy that corrupts from within an internal threat selfishness and self-centeredness were coming to to the light nehemiah is going to have to respond righteously as the leader here as the governor Put in this position. And loved ones, if you have been around a church life for any amount of time, any time a church goes into a building program, it brings about stress. It brings out selfishness, self-centeredness. I want it blue. I want it red. You can't have it facing that way, all these things. And, and even our architect and uh, building team They were kind of feeling us out when we first met with them to say, okay, now we've been with some churches, and and they were trying to say nicely. We just ended up watching a civil war happen. Is that going to happen with y'all? Are we going to be okay? Are we going to be good? Godly and fearless leadership must balance well two threats, external threats and internal threats. In the early church, if you read through the book of Acts, the early church... The Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people come to faith. They're baptized. And this is amazing. And then the pressure and the threats start coming from religious leaders. But then in Acts chapter 4 and in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6, the threat changes. In Acts chapter 5, there's lying Ananias and Sapphira. That's a threat to the church, the integrity of the church. In Acts chapter 6, there's a threat, and that's just a simple It seems to be simple, and that's the complaining Hellenistic widows. We're being neglected in the daily distribution. There's a hint there of there's racism going on, and they're not taking care of our widows. There's a threat, and the whole church, the whole mission can derail if it's not handled spiritually and in wisdom. And they did. In Nehemiah's day, the wall needed to be rebuilt. This project is revealing the stress fractures that have been under the surface. And now they're not out in the gardens. They're not out doing their normal daily work because the wall needed to be built, needed to be built. And so who's going to be taking care of feeding my family? I can't eat the brick and mortar. I can't take that home to feed my family. In the church, being devoted to the Great Commission, it demands, and listen to me, loved ones. It demands commitment. Today, we're receiving two families into membership. There's a commitment here. And every time we we are reminded, as we receive, as a member, we remember, I made that vow to God to be a faithful member of a body of believers. There's sacrifice that is demanded. There's a need for leaders to lead through all of the challenges of different personalities All kinds of opinions, in case you didn't know this. There's ethnic diversities, or some churches struggle is there's a lack of ethnic diversity. That's a challenge. Political differences, socioeconomic differences, and the list can go on way past lunchtime this afternoon. How will we endure? How will we make it? How will we live for the glory of God? And this is the overarching, you see it there on your worship guide. From Nehemiah chapter five, people of grace will live for God's glory and the good of all peoples. People of grace will live for God's glory and the good of all peoples. As followers of Christ, loved ones, we live in the fear of God. It's in the wonder of God's grace. And that moves us to care about those who are suffering. It moves us to see where there's a lack of righteousness. We understand that God is just, and therefore he is the one who defines what is right and what is wrong, and what is good and what is evil, and what is just and what is unjust. And I'm well aware of the popular phrase now adding words before justice. And in doing so, it often strips away the real meaning God-defined of what justice is. Sin always harms. Sin always hurts and destroys and devastates. The Bible says this, Psalm 33, 5, that our God loves righteousness. Righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 37, 28, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. It's justice. Psalm 89, and verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. That's his unmerited favor, has said that steadfast love. It's the foundation of his throne. You can't take away God and still have justice. Because then someone else has to be on the throne of what they perceive to be injustice, what's wrong. And then they are left up to come with their remedy of here is what I say is what is right. But no one will stand before that human being in judgment. Amos, all right, remember? Amos is from the hometown of the, of the nobles that wouldn't lend their shoulder, wouldn't bow their neck to the work. Amos was their guy. Listen to what Amos says, 515. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Micah 6, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? You want to know what is the meaning of life? You want to know why you're here? Why you've been given life? Here it is. But to do justice and to love kindness or mercy, your Bible might say, and to walk humbly with your God. Oh, let a church be defined by that. Let us as a people be, te- be defined by justice, mercy, and humility. And what can God do through that people in the power of the Holy Spirit? What did Jesus say in Luke eleven forty two? 42? He had a rebuke to the Pharisees. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, that's a curse, For you tithe mint and rue and every herb. But here's the problem. It's very similar to when Jesus confronts the church in Ephesus. You are fighting and you know your doctrine and you battle everybody, but I have a problem with you. You have lost your first love. Listen to what Jesus says to these Pharisees. You're parsing out all your, well, I did this, and I, here's the giving for that. Here's that. But you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That's, that's wonderful. You should be. If you're a child of God, if I'm a child of God, our giving should reflect grace Lord, you have given me a paycheck, you've provided for me, and I return to you that which belongs to you first, not after I take care of me and mine, and then I give to you, but I return in thanksgiving and a proclamation of I trust you for more to come. That's what Jesus is saying. You should have done all that, but you cannot neglect this. And you missed it. You missed justice and love. So Paul would write Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity now, he's writing to the church, let us do good. Let us do good to everyone. As we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see where our kindness and justice and mercy is to begin? And flow out from it's our faith family it's our church it's the people that we worship and we walk together with and we work together with that's where it begins and the overflow from that environment changes the world these are a people who are marked by grace we don't think oh of course I deserve salvation do you know me do you know you We can't keep the law of God. So how then will we do this? Number one, from Nehemiah's example, we will consider the oppression. We will consider the oppression and we see this in the first five verses here of our text. If you will follow along, I'll read out loud. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. It sounds very similar to the time in Egypt when they were starving. Verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Loved ones, if we're going to consider the oppression, then we have to listen to the cry of the poor. We have to listen to the cry of the poor, and this is what Nehemiah is doing here. This whole project is surfaced that here you have wealthy people working beside those who are their kids are enslaved, and you're, you're standing there working on a project together. Hey, how you doing? Are you kidding me? How's my daughter doing? I was just going to put some more brick on the wall. I, just, I, mean, I think I'm going to go get another stone. Hear the complaint of the oppressed. If we're going to listen to the cry of the poor, then we must hear the complaint of the oppressed. It is wise and it is compassionate to listen well to those who are in need. If we're going to grasp this problem, the problem that they're in, Nehemiah is listening to the problem. It was intensified due to the building project that he was leading. So the people could actually have him in the cross there. It's like, it's your fault. You're the leader. We were sort of getting along, and then you came along and said, let's build a building You know, let's build the the walls back. And they've been lying in ruins for about 100 years now. But Nehemiah is a good leader. The people could not farm. Here's the the problems they were expressing. How how do we farm? We're building the walls. See that in verse 2. I can't feed my family with the walls, Nehemiah. Um, In verse 3, there's poor harvest. It says there's a famine. So that's either due to the construction, they can't take care of the field, the the beasts are coming in, cleaning out their fields like they did our garden last year, just took it it clean. You know, how are we going to be in two places at once, Nehemiah? I can't be on duty all the time. So now we're mortgaging our property. It was hopeless for them to get out of debt. All they're looking at is a bleak future. I know this is, this is 2,500 years old. Probably doesn't have anything to do with us living in the world we live in right now, right? Nobody, nobody's dealing with anything on higher interest. Credit card companies that try to get kids going into college, get your credit card, get your credit card, get your credit card, and then bury them. You have to get your degree to the to degree of 100000 to $200,000 in student loan debt. This is a real issue that I have, even with Christian institutions. That I met my wife in college. How do you meet your wife in college now and graduate if your parents weren't able to help you with your education? And you graduate from a Cedarville or a Liberty or somewhere else, and you together have $100,000, $150,000 in debt, and you're going to go in ministry? What church pays that salary? A house payment, the equivalent to a house. Oh, thank God for what we're seeing happen here. And that is from this congregation, the Lord will raise up leaders. I think that's what we see in the New Testament. And it doesn't displace the importance of institutions. I'm thankful for my education, but there has to be some way to not put a husband and wife, newlyweds, buried in debt, and then go into ministry as if that's the easiest job and and, and calling ever in life. It's the grace of God that we are still married. But I've been in other churches where I hear them say with their pastors, what is your student loan debt? What is your debt? Hey, and I remember a missions pastor down in Ohio, and the church came to him and they said, hey, where are you at in your debt level? Okay, here's what we'll do. Every dollar you put on your debt will match your dollar, and we're going to get you out of debt. I was like, man, that's a church that loves their pastors. Let me tell you something. All of those pastors are still working in that church, or they've been planted in other churches in the Cleveland area. Why? Because they know that they they love me. They're not just using me. They're helping me for the glory of God, for the good of all peoples. It's not a selfish thing. It's a kingdom thing. Their taxes. Do I even need to spend time here? Because we're coming to April. You got them all done? Their taxes were high. Hey, Nehemiah, could you go back to your buddy, the Persian king, and tell him to knock it off? Do you know what the Persian kings did? When you paid your taxes in coins, they were notorious for taking the coins out of circulation, melting them, putting them in, put them into jars, and then they would let them solidify, break the jars, store the bullion, out of circulation, inflation is through the roof, and how do they pay? What does our government do? Just print more. I remember that. Uh, I remember still when I was a kid in Montana after a Sunday, we drove by the ice cream shop in Billings, Montana. And we said, why don't we stop? And I remember my parents saying, we don't have the money to stop for ice cream for the whole family tonight. And I thought they were lying to me because I saw my dad had a checkbook. And my, my wisdom at age whatever, five, dad, just pay a check. <laughs> How hard is this? Just write a check, ice cream for the kids. How hard is this? I had this all figured out. you yeah, ever Right. Our government devalues money. What is our government doing right now? Enslaving future generations. It's throwing more money that can't even be traced to where it's going and what is being purchased everywhere for everything. But take heart, loved ones, this isn't our final stop. God is not asleep and he's not distant. He's not distant. I think it was Calvin that said, a nation has leaders that it deserves. So we think about all of this in the light of God's sovereignty, in the light of God's providence. Some people were forced to sell their children into slavery. If we're going to take care of the remaining kids that are at home, they were putting their kids into slavery. That's what happened if you read in Exodus And the Lord raised up Joseph in Genesis, and he had the plan for the seven-year famine that followed the seven-year bumper crop. And and in that seven-year famine, people came and they said, here's all our money. Thank you, we're we're alive. Then they came and they said, we don't have any more money. He said, I'll mortgage your land, mortgage your house, until Pharaoh owned all of Egypt. And that was good when you have Joseph as as your mediator. Joseph died, another pharaoh raises up, he doesn't know the Lord, and suddenly, he has all the power and he owns everything. Why do you think the government wants everyone on welfare? To absolutely destroy the dignity of a human being, to do what God put Adam and Eve in the garden to do, and that is work, carry out out what I've given, and that is do something with your life, and when your time comes and you die, and we all will, that people will be left behind your wake, helped, served, encouraged, built up to whatever degree of influence that God gives to us. And what does the government say? We wanna be God. We'll just keep sending you more checks. Stay at home, young men, and play video games. Don't grow up and take responsibility. Let us do that for you. And give us your kids younger and younger. The people of God say, I don't think so. We know our Bibles. And our hope is not in an elected official. We'll give them a vote. But what do we say over and over? We're not giving them our heart. Someone greater owns that. Worst of all, this is where it gets really sensitive. The people that were enslaving them were their Jewish brethren, the fat cats, they were their brothers, they were their distant family members, and this was in direct violation of God's law, what he had given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's principles here that we can gather from, this is not for us, we do not have a theocracy, okay, we live in a republic and we're thankful for that, Exodus 22, and, and I, yeah, we could spend a long time here, but when you're reading through the Old Testament, you're going to see these things connect together. Some of the laws and some of the who can marry who and all of the different things, well, we don't live there, but it tells us something about God protecting his people. Exodus 22, verse 25, this is the command from Moses, from God through Moses to the people. If you lend money to any of my people, you hear that? My people. With you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body, and in what else shall he sleep? Now, don't miss this last line. If the poor guy and you wrong him, you take his coat, you leave him sleeping in cold, and he gets sick and he can't go work, how's he gonna pay his debt back? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I, unlike you, I am compassionate. You don't own him. He's mine, and you're mine. And by the way, the coat is mine. And wherever he's sleeping, that's mine too. Deuteronomy 23, Verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Ooh, what does the Lord really mean there? I think what he's saying is, yeah, that's it. Don't charge your brother interest. Hey, can I borrow your shovel? Okay, well, you know, I paid $23.74 for that, so I figure that's about it. Knock it off. Give him your shovel. Maybe go with him and take another shovel and help him. How about that? That would, that would be fitting. Verse 20: You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Not your family. You know anybody? I'm sure nobody listening is the person that when you, when you, Pick up something for someone? Yeah, that was that was 1742 at Target. 1742. Here's $20. Okay, here's your change. Like, come on. Are we parsing all of this out? Hear the complaint and empathize with the condition of those oppressed. Now we've heard the complaint. What are we going to do about this? Nehemiah, he empathizes with them. He's identifying with them. He's putting himself in their situation. And he didn't have to do this. Remember who Nehemiah is. He's got the credit card of the king. He has everything he could ever need, and he could demand anything he wanted. You don't want the king coming after you, do you? Well, then give me your goat. Give me your wagon. Give me your donkey. I'll take your house. He had really an endless supply of resources that he would have to answer to the king for. So Nehemiah, instead of doing that, he chose to get close to the people and get involved in their daily lives. Have you ever seen a politician and they're out with the people at the diner, you know, Bob's diner somewhere, and they're like, this is going great and all these people love me, and then somebody stands up and they ask him a question that they weren't ready for? And they actually are asking for a true response, and you can tell the politician is immediately embarrassed and they want to get out of there, and they're looking for a handler anywhere to come get, to shove people out of this room, please, because I don't want to answer that. It happens. Nehemiah cared about the situation of those who were suffering. He listened to them, and he loved them, but they're not just telling him this information for him to say, oh, thank you for sharing. Now, back to the walls. no. He didn't run from them. He engaged with them, and he didn't have to. He could have cracked the whip harder. The suffering that they were going through was not supposed, and it was not invented. It was real, and it was life-threatening. The suffering that they were enduring was a result of sin. The Israelites were living in direct disobedience to God's word, and that always leads to problems, suffering, there's a problem here, and there needed to be a solution. So let's think about this. Consider the oppression. Hear the complaint. Empathize with the condition. How well do we consider the needs of others who are hurting or suffering? How readily do we take the time when somebody is in need? Or are we like, ooh, look at the time. i got to get going. How are we helping to ease suffering how might, be, how might we actually be causing suffering, and we simply don't care? Open borders is not easing suffering. No one lives rationally with open borders. The people that are advocating for open borders have plenty of security. It's not honoring to the Lord. And what is happening is people are being depleted out of countries. Who's left then? Who's going to take care of the land there? Nehemiah, we have a problem. Hey, let's all go back. Let's all go back to Persia. What about the land here that God has given to us that we're to be stewards of? We have to filter through all all of the waves, the tidal waves that are coming and think biblically, not just emotionally. Don't think with our feelings. Perhaps, loved ones, if we're gonna empathize with the condition of those who are oppressed, perhaps we have people in our lives that are living in sin and we haven't loved them enough to confront them because we're we're too hesitant because, well, I might jeopardize my relationship with them so I'm not gonna say anything. I'll just let them carry on in sin that is destroying their lives. How is that loving? We have to let this sink in. The justice of God. Listen to the words of the Methodist minister, John Stockton. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word only trust him, only trust him, only trust him now. He will save you, he will save you, he will save you now. See, when we think about the oppression, we, have, we don't just think about the, the window shopping. What's behind the window? What's behind the eyes? What's behind the problem? And that's where Nehemiah is focusing his attention. Consider the oppression. And secondly, we need to confront the injustice confront the injustice. We're going to continue on. Verse 6, Nehemiah recording, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say, so I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. That's what Moses' father-in-law said to him. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending to them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, "'and their olive orchards, their houses, "'and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil "'that you have been exacting from them. "'Then they said, "'We will restore these and require nothing from them. "'We will do as you say. "'And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised.' I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Well, this is a good day. Nehemiah confronted the injustice. We have to look to cancel debts, and that's what he was doing. Let me ask you the question. Has your sin that been canceled? Have you stopped telling God how great I am? I'm not like other people. I, I try hard. I go to church. I give. I do. I, I, I. You understand a salvation testimony never begins with I. It begins with God. In his mercy, looked down on me, a sinner deserving of hell, and he sent Christ, and Christ paid the debt I couldn't ever pay, and he was crucified, buried, and he rose again. He is my only hope. It's the gospel. Has your debt been canceled? Have you been reconciled to God? Then if you and I have been reconciled to God, do you know what we're going to be looking to do? How can we help cancel debts? You understand when Nehemiah is confronting the wealthy who are oppressing the poor, the poor also have to cancel a debt that they will release the the wealthy from. Debt canceling is going to go both ways here. I cancel your debt and I cancel my anger and all I want to take out against you. And I give it to the Lord. We need to react to the problem with an appropriate intensity. You see Nehemiah here? He's not ambivalent. He was affected by the plight of those being oppressed. He listened to their outcry. He gained a full understanding of the situation. He knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Torah. He knew what was expected of God's people. He knew why they were put into exile. He knew God, and he was a man who prayed. He was not merely swayed by emotional accusations or invented grievances against the wealthy, the one percenters. Job and Abraham were wealthy individuals in the Bible, loved ones. Our resources come from the, the, the Lord, so it's not wrong to be wealthy, and it is not wrong to begin a business and, 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 and have wealth. But everyone, whether rich or poor, will answer to the Lord of what have you done with the resources?" that actually belong to the Lord, that he borrowed to you. It's not wrong to be a certain ethnicity. Okay, this is the problem with social justice. It makes a certain group of people, you're wrong for being that people. Okay, who's responsible for that? God. Do you understand where the issue is when it's not biblical justice, which is the only justice that there is, which is why Justice, Lady Justice, is blind. Google it; it's biblical. Someone comes before you when they're wealthy. Someone comes before you when they're poor. In Israel, God says, "Judges, that doesn't that doesn't. You don't look at that. What is right in my standard, and what is wrong according to God's standard, and rule accordingly." Justice is blind. It's a biblical principle. He was moved to anger at this injustice. He was filled with a righteous indignation at the oppression of the poor by the rich. Psalm 4 and verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent, Selah. And when Jesus... John chapter two, when he went into the temple and he saw what was happening by the wealthy down to the poor. The Passover, the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is righteous indignation. You have turned my house into a den of thieves get out what does he he really mean by this get out knock it off get out of here you're perverting what God cares about he cares about the poor and you are using and abusing them Ephesians 4 the Apostle Paul he reiterated the Old Testament principle be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So people of God, there is a place, there's a time where it's appropriate for us to be righteously indignant. Nehemiah took the time, he gathered his thoughts, he gathered his emotions. Said he I took counsel with myself. We're going to react to this problem with appropriate intensity. But he didn't fly off the handle. He didn't just go running in, you know, just with a sword and just start going after people. It means that he mastered his feelings. I took counsel with myself. I had to stop, I had to pray, I had to think. What's wrong here? Why is it wrong? What's the solution here? What needs to be done? God, you're going to have to help me because I'm, I am fit to be tied. I am angry. He didn't just go post on social media. <laughs> there it is. No. He said I had to get it together first. It's the opposite of road rage. It's the opposite of flying off the handle that someone has offended me personally, and I'm going at them. Can I ask us all the question? What offends you most, when you are wronged or when the name of God is wronged? When you are offended, when somebody does you wrong, or when somebody is living in sin and offensive to a God who is holy? What gets you most upset? It'll tell you about your heart, tells me about mine. So he brought the charges against the nobles and the officials. His plan had some teeth to it. He refused to back down from any enemy to God, to God's people, or God's work. Oh, may God give us people like this. So he called a great assembly. I don't know if his guy blew the trumpet or what. Like, blow it. Everybody's supposed to gather. Let's get in the town square. Here we go. What? Thank you for coming we have some business to attend to. There's a serious situation here. He's calling a family meeting. When the coach sees that it's all falling apart, time out, time out, time out. What are you guys doing? What are you ladies doing? Are you kidding me? Did you forget all of our practices, all of your training? Stop shooting from half court. Wise, there's no defense out there. Yeah, because he went into the stands again. Stop. Approach the problem with biblical integrity. So he's angry, but it's appropriate. It's fitting. He's not just losing his cool. Approach the problem with biblical integrity. That's what Nehemiah does. He makes his case. The confrontation was proper. They were being disobedient to God. They were disobeying God's word. They were being abusive to God's people. It was a horrible testimony to everyone. Verse nine, don't you care about the enemies, what they're gonna say about the people of God? The confrontation was prompt. He didn't wait long. He got himself together. He called a the meeting. There's a threat here to this project being done. The whole project would take about 52 days to finish. So somewhere here, it happens, Nehemiah, our crops, we're in debt. You want my kid to show up to work? Ask, you know, the buddy over there. He owns my kid now. This isn't right. This confrontation was public. Public sins by the people of God demand public confrontation. It was true for Israel and it's true for the church. Refusing to deal with the sins of identified leaders, it leads to more cover-up, more lies, and more lives hurt. And just hang out on social media for a few minutes and you can find there are people that are absolutely angry at the abuse that they suffered at the hands of people who carried a really big Bible. Talk to any people who have been in ministry. They've suffered on many different levels, sometimes from pastors they worked for, sometimes people they worked with. In the name of God, how does this happen? Well, we know abuse has taken place in the Catholic church, and that's been made, but let me tell you something. There's been abuse in the evangelical church too. And a lot of times, people just say, oh, shucks, he didn't mean it. And they try to sweep it under the rug. They try to blame the young lady often. Well, you think God's ambivalent to this? You think God doesn't care about this? He does. That's why Jesus gave Matthew 18 for a process of church discipline, dealing with those. It's why in 1 Timothy 5, if you turn there in your Bibles, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, when it comes to those who serve in a congregation... Those who serve in in an identified leadership way, the, the expectation is clear. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, 1 Timothy 5. For the Scripture says, Old Testament, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, he's speaking of those who are in church leadership, rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? Why don't you just brush it under the rug until finally social media picks it up and the guy has to resign? I mean, it's almost every month some famous pastor has to resign. And the people that you work with, and we live near, like, there goes them Christians again. I mean, did you see the plantation the pastor lived in? (laughs) And non-believers can get two and two to equal four. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We're right back here. This is where Nehemiah said, this is the awe of God. Verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. I mean, he called them all. Like, this is God, Christ, and the angels, Timothy. You think God's serious about those who preach the word to live the word? I would say so. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, Timothy. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people, and now this, I will tell you this, these two verses right here, have, have God has used these two to sustain me in ministry at many points and times. The sins of some people are conspicuous. Going before them to Judgment. But the sins of others appear later, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain unhidden. What is Paul telling Timothy? Hey, Timothy, there's some people that get exposed in this lifetime before the judgment, and there are some people that make it through this entire lifetime, and no one ever finds out all the crap they do they're gonna stand before God in judgment and nothing will be missed. Hey, Timothy, there's another side of this coin. There are people who serve faithfully and people know them and they say, thank the Lord, bless the Lord for that person in my life. Let me tell you, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands who serve in nurseries and childcare and in kids' church and shoveling snow and vacuuming carpets and preaching and serving around this globe and no one knows who they are except the only one that matters. Hey, Timothy, the Lord knows, and he has the record. So throw away your little record, Timothy. You know, they did that against me, and they did that, and they do good. Forget all that. Ditch the whole, you need a plaque for everything done good. A participation trophy. Oh, Lord, help us. and I love this, address the problem with confident expectancy. Nehemiah engaged those in error, but he did so with great expectation. He engaged them. He addressed this problem. He said, family meeting, let's get together. But when he went into dealing with this problem, he was confident. He was going somewhere with this. He had a confident expectancy. It'll come up on the screen. He knew what the problem was. So he addressed it. You're not walking in the fear of God. You're treating others awfully. You're misrepresenting God to all the nations. But he goes into this with a confident expectation of how it's going to turn out. He's trusting the Lord. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus is coming. And when they look at the church, are they seeing a people who are thinking of that day more than every other thing that can fill our calendars? Think about that. Does your family see that Jesus is coming as preeminent in your scheduling and your planning? Because when that day comes, all of the other stuff that we often are busy with, it, it really will find its relative position. He deals with the problem. He gives a proposition. He says, here we go. Wealthy people, forgive the debts just like you were commanded in Scripture. Hey, poor people, forgive the offense of the, of the wealthy against you. Give them back their children. Give them back their houses. Give them back their land. Give them back their fields. Give it all back to them. Hey, Poor people, forgive them. Forgive them. There's a job to be done. So release them, cancel the debt, and they said, "We will." In verse 12, and he said, "That's great." Priests, come on over. Okay, we come to the the marriage altar right here. How many times? And I do, I do. Death to us part. Death to us part. Amen. And afterwards, on a table, I say, "Here's the pen. Sign the line." Witnesses, sign the line. You vowed before God and the people gathered to live out your vow of faithfulness. That's what he's saying. Priests, come on, come on. You heard what they said. Yes, we heard what they said. They're making a vow to God, not me, because I'm not gonna be around forever. Their vow is with the Lord and the priests, They, there it is, sign the line. And then verse 13, okay, we signed. We're gonna give it all back. We sign. He says, now one more thing before you go. And he shakes out the fold of his garment. He said, he calls down a providential curse on them. If you renege on your commitment, then I'm calling the God of heaven to deal with you and judge you. And suddenly, the you know, Amen. <clears throat> okay. But listen to how it responded in verse 40. All the people said, Amen. Praise the Lord. What just happened there? This is like a violent storm over the people of God and the project. And he brings them all together and he says, here's the problem. Yes, that is a problem. You're disobeying God's word. Yes, we're disobeying God's word. Forgive them. Okay, we'll forgive them. Now, poor people forgive and cancel their debt. Okay, we will. Priest, sign. Yes, we'll do it. Calls down a curse. And then all the people say, praise the Lord. And it's like the sun comes through and the clouds clear and the birds are singing and then everybody's left there. You know, the wall is over here, still needing to be done. And they walk out of that horrific, could have been altercation into the blessing and goodness of God. And that brings us to the last section. And if we're gonna live for God's glory, Consider the oppression, confront the injustice. And thirdly, let's turn compassion into action. By the grace of God, we will turn compassion into action. And here we see Nehemiah, really a a type of Christ, a servant leader from the Old Testament. He just lists down that his money was where his mouth was. He, he, He was doing what he asked them. Look at verse 14, moreover. From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Don't lord it over them. That's what the Gentiles do. But I did not do so because of the, here it is, the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense For each day, and I'm sorry, we're all about to get hungry here pretty soon, okay? Was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember me, or remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people." Oh, may we love others through radical generosity. And the application here is very straightforward and simple. Nehemiah, he doesn't do this to do a big pat on the back. Wasn't I amazing? He simply says there's a a better way to live in the blessing of God. There's really five lessons here. If we're gonna love others through radical generosity, then we loved ones, we have to learn to say no to self. If we're gonna be able to help other people, then we're gonna have to learn to say no, it's letter A, to self. How hard is that to do? We live in a culture that says, don't say no to self. We'll help you say yes to whatever you want. And by the way, we'll show you a whole lot more that you don't have and you probably want. We have to lay down our personal rights if we're going to help others. We need to be out from under debt ourselves if we're going to be a blessing to others. It's not easy to do. Nehemiah was governor for 12 years before he returned to Persia. Remember what William Borden said? wrote in his Bible, learn to say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. This is Nehemiah. He didn't take all that was allotted to him. You know, some of you work in companies that there's the budget that comes out every year and if you don't use the budget, what happens to that budget? You lose it. It goes down. So what do they do? Let's buy all new desks. Let's buy all new chairs. You don't need new chairs. You don't need new anything. Yeah, but if we don't spend it, we won't have it next year. And that's how the government works. That's not how your family works. So it drives the cost up on everything. He didn't ask more from the people, but he could have, like the other governors did. He was a different kind of a leader. It's refreshing to not have leaders making backroom deals to increase their portfolio or their friend's portfolio or their family members at the expense of national security. Nehemiah is a different kind of leader. You can trust this guy. And then we have to look to serve instead of be served. You see this in verse 15. Nehemiah is a servant leader, he's not an overlord. Nehemiah's servants follow his lead and they serve, whereas the guys before they would just run around with, eh, here it is, I'm governor. Hey, uh, give me that, do that, run over there and uh, you know, pick my laundry up for me and go wash my car, which they didn't have cars, go get my chariot, whatever. Just go do it for me. And then their juniors would run around, their little apprentices, like, yeah, and do that and do this. Nehemiah says, how about, can I help you? And his servants were like, we'll help too. We like being with this guy. Uh, Who does that remind us of, Mark 10, 45? For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Loved ones, that's Jesus. So let's look to serve instead of be served. Let's live in the wonder of God's grace. And we see this in verse 15, that it's a fear of God that controls him, that motivates him. It's the wonder of who God is that it changes his attitude and his actions. It's all motivated by the goodness and grace of God that he's been forgiven to forgive. He's been graced to show grace and he lives in the wonder of God's grace. Are you living in the wonder of God's grace this morning? That you remember who you were and Jesus died for you, the person who couldn't keep the law. And he died in your place. If we remember that, we'll live in the wonder of God's grace and we will let our D, will lead by example. This is a leader that we should emulate. This is a leader to follow. He persevered in the work on the wall. He went right back to work. He didn't go call a big, like, let's celebrate and let's hang out. There's work to be done and he went right back to the work. He didn't take advantages of others. Economic downturn, he has money. You know what he could have done? He could have bought it all. Everybody's in hard times, he could have bought your land, bought your house, bought your land, bought your house on the king's dime. He didn't. He said, I've got a job to do. <laughs> what a man of integrity. Did you see his uh, menu? Over the course of 12 years, you know how many oxen that is? 4,380 oxen. 26,280 sheep. That's a big table and a lot of food. Do you realize that's enough to feed? They figure it out. Six to 800 people a day. Six to 800 people are eating with Nehemiah every day. 150 of them are Jews. There's a lot of people from nations around that are saying, who's your God? Can you tell me more about your God? Because I've met a lot of governors and they don't do what you're doing. Why are you doing this? Let me tell you about my God. And where does it all end? Letter E, let God keep the records. That's what Nehemiah, remember me. Remember for my good oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the first occurrence of this prayer. It will show up at the end of his record. And there's a lot of times, can, can I talk to those of you who serve faithfully in ministry? Do you know how thankful I am for your faithfulness in ministry? As I was driving back last week and just thinking about the faithful, those who serve in all of these unseen ways. And sometimes it feels Like, man, where is everybody else serving with me? Am I really making a difference? You have 101 other places you could be on the Lord's Day, and yet you prioritize being in the house of God with the people of God because you understand something. I need it. We cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves together and still present that Jesus Christ is worth it all. Let me encourage you in this scripture. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And you know what? Did God answer that prayer? 2,500 years later, Richmond, Michigan, and we're talking about a guy named Nehemiah. And by the spirit of God, his name in this record is put down do we serve on an instrument or changing diapers or whatever it is that we do? Controlling mm-hmm. buttons back in the back in the way that says, God, this is for you. I'm serving you with or without people around that, oh, let me help. Ah, never mind. Here they come. There they go. Lord, help me to be like Nehemiah and just serve you week by week, day by day, wherever God has placed you in whatever environment for the honor and glory of God. Nehemiah loved God, not money. Nehemiah loved God's people, so he shared. Nehemiah loved God's work, so he invested himself in the work of God heavily, and that lasts forever, and it's the only thing that does think about that. I love what J.I. Packer wrote. He said, you know, if Nehemiah were here today, I think this is what he would say, that zealous, single-minded service of God doesn't feel like sacrifice when you're engaged in it. It feels rather like active gratitude. I love that. Seeking self-expression and active faithfulness That's what it is to live in the fear of God, like active gratitude, seeking self-expression and active faithfulness. It feels indeed like living the life that you were meant to live and that the Lord redeemed you for. That's why we serve. That's why we worship. That's why we walk together. That's why we work together. So as a people of grace, yes, God help us consider the oppression. Don't be too busy. Don't be too ignorant. Don't be too arrogant to look in on those who are oppressed. Consider the oppression and confront the injustice. Stand up to what is wrong, what is sinful, what is unrighteous by biblical standards like Nehemiah did, and turn compassion into action for the glory of God and the good of all peoples. We can't do this on our own but by the power of the Holy Spirit we can and we will. We will live this way. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, there is oppression all around us. There is conflict within us and we desperately need you Lord, I easily can just carry on with my regular life and just go through my daily routine and not be moved to compassion by those who are at need, in need around me. So I ask you, Lord, to forgive me. Forgive me for being too busy, for being too narrow minded, focused. That when you present needs, And I'll take the time that I should to consider the need and help meet the need. Father, as a church, let us be a church like this group of people, that we see the suffering, we see the need, and we don't just have programs to meet the need, but we will invest our lives with people and address the true, real underlying problem. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that like Nehemiah, you didn't stay removed from our suffering, but you came and you took to yourself human flesh and you lived the life that we could never live and you died the death that we deserve to die and you rose again to glorious life. Oh, Father, may we live in the grace of God, in the goodness of God, and bring this message of salvation to all people. For the honor and glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.